The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. On this episode, we're speaking with Jay Sinha, the co-author of the book Life Without Plastic, the practical step-by-step guide to avoiding plastic to keep your family and the planet healthy. So it was you and your wife that wrote the book together? That's right. Chantal and I, we, we wrote it together. And it flows really from our experiences, which go back quite a ways. For us, this whole journey in terms of trying to live with less plastic began when, even before our son was born, it really began when we were looking for a water bottle that was not plastic. Going way back, we were using plastic water bottles ourselves and reusing them over and over, thinking that was you know, the really environmental thing to do. These are those single-use disposable plastic water bottles, which are really intended for single use. Mm -hmm. So as we were using them, we would see them weathering and even cracking and breaking down. And so we started looking for a a non-plastic water bottle. They were very hard to find way back then, back in like 2002. And we did come across the company Clean Canteen. At that time, it was more of a co-op. It wasn't the same sort of company it is now. And they were offering these stainless steel water bottles, which at the time looked really unique and kind of weird. But so we ordered one, tried it out, loved it, and that got us thinking in that direction. And then when our son was actually born, we really wanted to try and minimize his exposure to toxins in general. We had had some pretty bad experiences with mold in places we had lived in just before he was born. And I think that made us a little more environmentally sensitive in general. So in general, we were trying to reduce our exposure to environmentally derived chemicals. And Chantal read an article about the chemicals coming out of plastics, so that got us thinking more. And then she was breastfeeding, but we were looking for glass baby bottles to avoid having to use plastic bottles for storing milk. Right. And back then, again, they were hard to find, even though they were the norm 30, 30 plus years, 20, 30 plus years ago. And now they've come back, for sure. But uh, again, in 2003, they were quite hard to find. But Chantal did some research and found a company in the States, Evenflow, in Ohio, that was still making them. And so contacted them and asked about uh, getting some. And they said, sure, no problem. But the minimum order is 1,000. Oh. So, because they only did wholesale orders. And so that kind of got us thinking. And um, that's more or less how the the business side of it began with those two products, like stainless steel water bottles and glass baby bottles. And then it kind of went from there into food containers, which would replace Tupperware, and then all manner of things in everyday life. Excellent. Because, yeah, you do have a store, so it's lifewithoutplastic.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. so that's really cool. And uh, I think you have some products at the new grocery store? Exactly. Yeah, in Ottawa? Yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's where I got one of my stainless steel it's like a bowl with a lid that clips on. Okay, yeah. So I've been yeah. using that in the freezer, which is kind of nice, actually. Great. We have these new bulk bags, which actually have a tear weight on them, which makes it easy oh. to weigh them before you're using them. And even a thin weave bag that's great for even things like flour is very fine material. So these ones are cotton. Nice. Yeah, 100% cotton. Yeah, organic cotton. Work very well. We've done some testing with them. 
Nice. Yeah, it's amazing to have all these products. And you're definitely not the first person I've heard who has started an environmental sort of eco business because you've had a child. And that really got me into doing a lot of research too. So I wish that I had had your book uh, when I was doing all that research. (laughs) Um, So it's nice that all of this research and different articles and these books are coming out now because it's scary to have a human that you're about to give birth to and then you know that they're being exposed to toxins and that the products you're giving them might not be very healthy. And so it's good to have these resources. Especially because their systems are so much more vulnerable as they're developing. Chemicals right. going into them can have a much more profound effect than, than us as adults. So, At one point, just to save money, I would buy my kid organic, like high quality stuff, or I would buy myself cheaper stuff because I was so kind of worried about him. So going back to the book, if there was one thing you could tell us listeners that Mm. is sort of the most startling thing you found, Uh. (laughs) what would that be? Well, I guess there'd be sort of two that really stand out for me personally. One is a product that as we were doing the research, a product that I had no idea had plastic in it and essentially has plastic and that is tea bags because I'm a huge tea drinker and that was a real shock yeah. and a real a real um a really depressing shock because I do love my tea so yeah most tea bags that are out there in in the mainstream are actually made of of a type of plastic it's a plastic mesh mixed with a paper and so that was a real shock to me. Now, that that is changing now as there are alternatives coming into play, but it's it's still one that's quite common. But the other really startling thing that came up throughout the book and and has, you know, been there over the years is the amount of additives that are in plastics. And people have no idea. I mean, we had no idea. I had no idea until started looking into the research of it. But you may have a plastic resin such as, for example, polyethylene terephthalate, which is used to make, for example, single-use disposable water bottles. But then you have other additives that are added to all kinds of different plastics to give them different properties. And just to give you an idea, um, there are things ranging from antimicrobial products, antioxidants, uh, other plasticizers, colorants, curing agents, dyes, lubricants, fillers, flame retardants, foaming agents, fragrances, heat stabilizers, impact modifiers, uh, light stabilizers, pigments, um, slipping agents, solvents. So all of these things are other chemicals that are added to a core plastic resin to give it particular properties in the final product. But none of these chemicals are mentioned in the ingredients, uh, if you can even find the basic ingredients for a plastic product itself, Mm -hmm. which is often hard to do. It's often just the resin itself, which is indicated. So, I mean, that was a real shock. And so of the additives out there, there are hundreds of categories, and within each category, hundreds of specific additives, meaning there are thousands out there that are used, and we have no idea. People have no idea. It's the chemical industry that knows, and that leads to the question, then what are the effects of these additives, and that we do not know. So as plastic pollution becomes more of an issue, I do believe that the health impacts of it are going to become more and more of an issue as we're seeing increasingly with endocrine disrupting chemicals. Absolutely. And there are so many health concerns that we have right now, and we're not sure why we're having health problems. And, you know, if we don't even know what we're putting in our bodies, then... Exactly. And it should be labeled. But I think in the meantime, 
it's good to do what you're suggesting in the book, which is just try to eat things that are not in plastic or um, basically uh, to have a life without plastic, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, that's basically the core of the book. And we, we focus really on individual action and how any one individual person can really have an impact by trying to reduce the amount of plastic that they're using or buying or that comes into their lives. And it's, it's really easy to do for pretty much anyone, even just starting with what we, like right at the beginning of the book, we have sort of a, a quick start guide, which we call our super easy Pareto plastic, Pareto plastic free living quick start guide. And it's based on the Pareto principle where about 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So the idea is that 80% of the impact comes from 20% of the plastics. I mean, that's just a, a very generalized statement. We've made the idea being that a lot of the plastic pollution impact is coming from single-use disposable plastics, which are so easy to eliminate from your life. And some very common examples are plastic bags, of course. Mm -hmm. You can replace with reusable bags, plastic water bottles. You can carry your own bottle made out yep. of glass or stainless steel. Straws are a huge one, making waves all over the world, leading to bans and huge actions. And those are so easy to eliminate. But also it's a matter of training restaurants, bars to, to not automatically serve them, to refuse them if they come, and mm -hmm. ideally prevent the server from bringing them by mentioning it up front. These are little actions that, that you can take. Absolutely. Like coffee cups, bringing your own mug, food containers, bringing your own container for takeout, mm -hmm. you know, utensils, bringing your own, even if just to grab a, a stainless steel fork and knife from your kitchen, carry it with you. Then you don't have to use plastic utensils because the problem being that most of these single-use disposable plastics are not recycled in part because they may be soiled with food or drink and that immediately removes them from the recycling stream but also because the value is not there. So a lot of them end up straight into a landfill or being incinerated or as pollution. Absolutely. Recycling is definitely not the answer because it's just what you're saying, that not all of it can be recycled. And a lot of restaurants will put out a place that says recycling, but if you just had a smoothie in a plastic cup and it has mm -hmm. fruit smoothie stuck all over it, <laughs> right. nobody is ever going to wash that for you. You no. have to wash it. For totally. it to get into that recycling, and I don't think people realize that. And no. then restaurants, they must know. They may have the good intention, but they have no control because the, once it goes into the recycling system, even if they are putting it in a recycling bin, I think most people don't realize that globally only about 9% of plastics end up being recycled. And in Canada, it's about just under 11%. That's, you know, 90% that's not recycled. So 90% going to a landfill or becoming pollution or being incinerated. That's not good. And the other thing being that the reason that uh, recycling also is not necessarily the solution is the fact that plastics that are, in fact, recycled are the higher value ones, you know, things like like more higher quality plastics. Like or ones thicker. That are, yeah, like high density polyethylenes or, or ones that are in huge volume, like the plastic water bottles. They are recycled a fair bit. But the problem is, even if they are recycled, they're generally downcycled, meaning they can only be used to make a plastic of lower quality and thus products of lower quality. Yeah. When you were doing your research, did you find any contradictory studies where one study was saying one thing like, oh, this chemical is safe, and then another study saying this chemical is not safe? Yeah, there there is stuff out there. I, I would say it's it's changing now because it's becoming so clear that certain plastics are not safe or are leaching things. But 
around BPA, that's been a big, a big element going back, you know, 10 years or beyond. And what we were finding at times were that there were studies indicating, and it, it specifically related in the BPA context largely to the low dose effects of BPA, bisphenol A. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to relate back to laboratory practice to some extent because we were seeing that some industry studies were showing that were, there were no low dose effects where you would have other academic studies done by university researchers where they were finding low-dose effects. And it seems to come back to guideline practices in laboratories. There's something called GLP, or Good Laboratory Practice. It's a set of rules, essentially, that emerged back in the 70s. It shapes much of the chemical research in industry and government labs. And it it has certain standards for data collection, record-keeping, and kinds of tests. But it's criticized largely by academics and universities because it may be causing barriers to using some of the most advanced science and to weighing all of the evidence that's available. So um, that's where you can get these different skewed results. And in terms of low-dose effects of bisphenol A and endocrine disruptors in general, it's almost become a no-brainer now. There are so many studies showing that at a very low amount, these chemicals are showing a biological effect. So that's the big one that stands out for me in terms of contradictory results. What were some of the kind of worst studies that you read about BPA? You know, there was one, let's see, a 2010 study where the neurotoxicologist um, in North Carolina looking at uh, the nervous systems of rats. And one thing mm-hmm. you have to understand, most of these studies are on animals or lower organisms. There's very few studies on, on humans mm-hmm. for many reasons, obviously. This one was that I was thinking about was looking at the nervous systems of rats exposed to tiny amounts of BPA that they were born. And this researcher found that they tended to have a more abundant growth of estrogen receptors in the brain, which was influencing their reproduction and behavior. So it's as though at very low dose, it seemed to be either causing the growth of new receptors or overstimulating receptors that were there, so causing an enhanced effect that was interfering with normal reproductive and behavioral processes, that sort of thing. And that's the typical sort of response that we're seeing now from the research that's coming out relating to low-dose effects from endocrine-disrupting chemicals. It's having an effect on developmental and behavioral processes. And And that's so scary, isn't it, to think about our children having to go through that. Yeah, and the whole idea of endocrine-disrupting chemicals is chemicals that are affecting hormonal systems. And hormones control most of our bodily function throughout the body. So it really begs the question, like, what are the long-term effects of these chemicals going to be on us as we move forward? Because hormones affect so much of what we do and how we live. So if you could recommend a type of plastic, sort of like a household item, to avoid because it might have BPA in it, I know that it's tough to tell what has BPA in it because, like we were talking about earlier, there's no labeling. But are there things that you kind of know probably have BPA in them? Well, BPA is actually a pretty easy one to identify now because um, it won't be labeled as BPA necessarily. It's often in the plastic polycarbonate, which is number seven. You have to be careful, though, because seven is a catch-all category. Mm-hmm. Numbers one to six of the recycling symbols are each a specific resin, whereas number seven is essentially everything else. You might see seven and then under it PC, which means polycarbonate. So that indicates it's essentially bisphenol A. But that's just one use of bisphenol A. 
a very common one, which is one that anybody can work towards eliminating, though it's, it's hard to do this, is BPA is used in the epoxies that line most metal tin cans yeah. of, of food. So there are now replacements coming up. Um, you can see, for example, there's a particular organic brand of tomatoes, which now has a BPA-free lining, which is one way to reduce them. Another common use of BPA is on the very thin cash register receipts. And those are everywhere, and it goes on to your fingers and can actually eventually go into your bloodstream. So it's a good idea if you are handling those receipts. I mean, ideally, if you don't need the receipt, then refuse it. If you are handling it, then it's a good idea to wash your hands afterwards. And there's been studies as well that show that antibacterial soaps and uh, lotions actually increase the absorption of that BPA into your skin. So if you have been using a cream that has antibacterial agent in it, you definitely want to wash your hands. I mean, it's going to be a very, very tiny amount, but the less BPA in us, the better. So you should wash uh, your hands after sanitizing your hands. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Strange. (laughs) That's the irony of so much of these chemicals for various uses. But another point I really would like to make is that you do see a lot of BPA-free products And those are something to be wary of. What you want to do is ideally contact the manufacturer if it's not labeled and find out exactly what the replacement is. Mm -hmm. Because what we have found is, and there's research on this as well, studies that have tested the different types. What has been found is that the BPA replacements are often still chemicals within the bisphenol family, such Mm -hmm. as BPS or BPF or BPAF which have been shown to also have endocrine-disrupting activity, sometimes even more so than BPA. So the fact that it says it's a BPA-free product, if it's still a plastic bottle, it it may well still be a bisphenol chemical with endocrine-disrupting chemicals in it. So I had a scientist come on the show who said bisphenol A was used as a contraception back in the 40s. Did you come across that as yes, well? Yes, yeah. I think, that, I think that was the original use of it. Yeah, yeah, and then it was put on the shelf for a long time, and then yeah. we were we were laughing because it's so absurd that <laughs> someone would go to that shelf and decide it's going to make plastic more malleable or, or whatever it is. And you know, it's interesting because I didn't know that BPA was uh, skin permeable. Yes. But that yeah. would make sense because I knew about the receipts, right? So... I do try to avoid those all the time, and I feel bad for the cashiers, right, because they're handling that stuff all the time. If you could recommend one type of plastic that we stay away from, would that be number seven plastic, just in case? No. um, To recommend one in terms of consumer product use, uh, well, I'll I'll say two quickly, but one, a key one is is polyvinyl chloride. It's uh, PVC. Yeah, PVC for, especially for for toys and anything food-related. It's just, I think, you know, one of the most toxic plastics out there and it's really quite unbelievable that it's still used to make toys. But that's what our water pipes are made out of. Yeah and those are a stronger form of PVC and again not ideal. There are options to PVC pipes but uh, it's not easy especially if it's already in your home and I, I think that's one to worry a little less about as opposed to things you're putting your food in every day, especially if it's hot and oily food. Mm-hmm. But because PVC piping is is so prevalent and it's, it's light, it's durable, it's cheap, that's why it's used so much. If you are in a position to actually be replacing your pipes, there are options such as copper or cast iron, although both of those are, are quite expensive. There's another one is even clay, vitrified clay. 
But there are other plastics which are of higher quality and likely not as dangerous, such as high-density polyethylene or one, another one called ABS, acrylonitrile, butadiene, styrene, which, which can be used for piping as well. I mean, they're, they're still plastics and still made from fossil fuels and have the same drawbacks as plastics, but are not as stable as PVC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have PVC pipes in our home for water, and we have a well, so I'm very happy yeah. that we have this clean water to drink, but then I yeah. worry about it going through the PVC pipes. Well, if it's flush, if it's coming through quickly and flushing regularly, and plus if it's cold, I think your risk is pretty minimal. We too, um, we have a well, and we built our house, and we had the source line done in copper for our, our main drinking water tap, mm-hmm. and the rest of it is PVC, and that was a, a cost-related issue because copper piping is so much more expensive. Essentially, it's about double the price. Mm-hmm. If you're flushing it regularly, the, the risk is going to be pretty minimal. And I guess if you need hot water, it would be better to boil it in a stainless steel kettle or a pot rather than turning the hot water on. That would be my preference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's usually what we do. Ours is coming through the copper, but in general, yeah, we tend to use the kettle. And so the PET bottles, I was assuming that PET bottles would maybe be safe because they don't have BPA in them, but they do have chemicals in them. Yeah, by PET we mean polyethylene terephthalate, and you do find it in a lot of the uh, single-use disposable water bottles. You also find it in other food containers, like for peanut butter, or it's also used in, in clothing, it could be padding or insulation, so it's had a wide range of uses. But in terms of those actual bottles, we try to avoid it for food and drink contact. There's a chemical called antimony trioxide, which is used as a catalyst and a flame retardant in making PET. And this antimony additive, it's, again, here we're getting into additives, it's considered a possible carcinogen, which means possible cancer-causing agent for humans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in normal conditions, the amount coming out of a single-use water bottle is is likely going to be very minimal, but the leaching increases, and this is based on research, as the temperature increases. So if you have water bottles that are sitting in a car trunk or in a car on a summer day and are are heating up or, or directly in the sun, that's going to impact the leaching definitely. There is some research showing that polyethylene terephthalate may even leach phthalates, although the plastics industry says that phthalates are not required to make PET, but there are studies that have shown that some phthalates have been found. There's one we cite in the book. It's a study of military packaged water, and the researchers exposed bottled water to temperatures ranging from a normal spring day to scorching desert sunshine for up to 120 days. And what they found was that the very highest, higher temperatures, both antimony and some phthalates were being released. So it's an individual choice, but as is the case throughout the book, we take a very precautionary approach and just prefer to avoid them whenever possible. Absolutely. I've been doing the same thing since I was pregnant with my son seven years ago. I just try to avoid all plastics if I can. And the episode that I did with Lorna, she did the study on BPA in teenagers' diets. And that just basically highlighted how difficult it is to get it out of our diets. Because even if we buy, I was saying in that episode, I would buy like an $8 jar of mustard because it's in glass. (laughs) And, And then she was saying, well, you don't know what it's been processed in. So it could have been processed in plastics and been in contact with BPA from a can or whatever. Like, you don't Absolutely. really know. That's a really good point. And just to give you a little anecdote, I mean, we often get contacted by people who have serious sensitivity issues with plastic. And I do remember um, a few years ago, there was a lady who was living in France 
And um, she was extremely sensitive to plastic to a, a very high degree. I'll give you an example. But she thought she traced it back to she had been living in China for years and was using daily water that was stored in the large blue water containers, yep. um, like you find in offices. And those are made out of polycarbonate, so BPA. And uh they used them really until they wore out completely. So getting extremely weathered and Oh my goodness, just getting gray. all the BPAs out of there that it, you can. Well, there would definitely be a lot of leaching. So she was quite convinced that that was what led to her sensitivity. And now, so living in France years later, she found that she had very great difficulty in eating anything that had touched plastic or been in contact with plastic. And it was to the point where she could not eat tomatoes in a can that have this epoxy lining with BPA. Or she could not even eat a croissant that had been packaged in plastic in a cardboard container that had plastic over it. So this is the sort of sensitivity I think we're going to see more of as these chemicals become more prevalent. And isn't that scary about those blue containers because you see them in every office? Yeah, and that's that's a big one that uh, may be a target eventually in terms of uh, future restrictions because uh, they're they're everywhere and they're used to store water and they're used over and over and over. But just use the tap, right? But also a lot of the water that you buy doesn't go through anywhere near the testing that uh, our municipal water does through taps. Right, yes, I've heard that that the municipal testing is is very, very good. A quick point on that too, if you are in another country and traveling, because I have some Indian background, so I've been in India a number of times and there we always drink the water, but it's always boiled. Um, So even carrying with you a little mini kettle to boil water wherever you are, that's that's another option. Nice, or a filter. So my friend just Mm -hmm. got back from Ethiopia, and he brought this little $20 filter that he got off Amazon, and he Um, was in Ethiopia, like, drinking out of lake water. And he didn't have any issues? (laughs) No, he didn't have any issues at all. He, He loves the filter. What is the biggest thing, in your opinion, that we need to change as a global population to get away from this overconsumption? Of plastic. Well, I think it's got to happen at several levels, but it really comes down to a behavioral shift, um, yeah. habit change. It's, it's basically changing our mindset around plastic and disposables in general and moving towards not seeing anything as waste. And so it goes back to the whole idea of a circular economy, which we talk about quite a bit in the book. The idea that um, you have an economy, no longer a linear economy, but a circular economy, a linear economy being where you have raw materials, they're used to create a product, the product comes to the end of its life, and then it's disposed of in a landfill or whatever. Whereas a circular economy, you have the same raw materials making something. The actual idea of a circular economy is that the products made are, are safe for both humans and the environment, so ideally not fossil fuel-based products. But they go into this economic system and never become waste. They're either cycled back into the system through recycling or biodegrade naturally. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to move towards that idea. But in terms of everyday living for plastics, it's really a behavioral shift. That's that's what the plastics problem is globally. Um, people have to understand that they can change their approach towards plastic just overnight, just through a quick mind shift and changing a few little habits and just no longer looking to use a plastic water bottle. Uh, Simply carry your own bottle, simply carry your own utensils, carry your own mug. It just becomes a habit. It's Mm -hmm. all about habit change and behavioral shift. I think that's where we need to move towards. And then there's the whole other higher up level, which we don't get so much into into the book, but it's happening 
hugely in, in big ways all over the world now as the issues exploded, and that is at both the governmental level and at the industry level, where you're getting large initiatives to move towards this sort of, this sort of a circular economy in, in various ways. It's definitely a behavioral change, and that's sort of what's difficult about it. But at the same time, that's what's easy about it, because if yeah. you just, like you said, bring your water bottle, and a lot of people are very uh, regimented. Um, they do the same things most days. So you right. get up and you eat something and you go to work and you come back and you eat something. And it's easy, I think, to make those changes when mm-hmm. you're on that routine. I think it's yeah, maybe... Little tweaks. And even just one at a time, one tiny little thing. Like just start by refusing straws. Start there. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I call it the countdown because I feel ah, like I'm yes. just slowly eliminating. So what are some next initiatives that you're working on? Are you guys working on another book? Are you taking a break? Are you working on your store? Yeah, we're not working on another book right now, but we're, I mean, we're always gathering information. So who knows down the road what that may lead to. In terms of product, we, we did a Kickstarter last year for a lunch bag, a plastic-free lunch bag, and that's almost done. So we're really excited about, about launching that this summer. Nice. What's it made out of? It's made out of cotton, organic cotton and hemp. Nice. And uh, yeah, completely plastic-free, and it has it's insulated. The unique aspect of it is that it's insulated with wool panels, which are repurposed from a local mattress company, Obasan, here in the in the Ottawa area. It's wool and mixed fibers that uh, come out of their organic mattress production, and they're able to create these panels for us that can be inserted, taken in and out of the bag, so it can be washable. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. Yeah. You can get the book at New Grocery in Ottawa. Where else can you get the book? Are you on Amazon? It, it, pretty much anywhere. Yeah, on online anywhere, both at Independence and uh, the big names, Amazon, Chapters, Indigo. Nice. It's a book for the ages. It's one to keep around for sure. It's so important. And so thank you for, for doing this and putting this information together because uh, I think we're going to save a lot of people by trying to bring this to the forefront that, you know, plastic isn't the best thing to be touching your, your food. Thanks, Laura. Well, and thanks for all that you're doing to bring these, these issues out into the forefront. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Your, your it's podcast. so important. That was Jay Sinha, who, along with Chantal Plamondon, wrote Life Without Plastic, the practical step-by-step guide to avoiding plastic to keep your family and the planet healthy. They also run the store lifewithoutplastic.com. This week on my Countdown to Zero Waste, I returned some plastic reusable berry baskets back to the Willow Creek Farm stand in Belleville for a circular approach to packaging, which also made all the berries I've been buying from them zero waste. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whichever platform you listen to us. You can follow me on Instagram at zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can find us on Podbean and click the button that says become a patron. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.